0: you can turn in your so we are still early on in a series on uh, first John and we're ending up the first chapter this morning and and uh so just a brief recap first John is a letter uh written to Christians written to churches as uh are most of the letters in the New Testament. Um, but this one's written to give some definition to our relationship with God for the sake of our assurance, so that we can know that we really do know Him. You've got to kind of define your terms and define the uh, terms of the relationship, right? If, that's gonna, uh, if you're going to be assured about that. And So last week we talked about the fact that God is light in verse 5 and how that means that He is a definite God. He is a particular God, a real God with real certain qualities Uh, especially that he reveals himself to us truly. That's what it means, that God is light. He reveals himself to us for our relationship with him and that also he is morally pure. And so if you're going to be assured that you really do know him, then first you actually really do have to know him. If you're going to be assured of it, it has to be true. Um, So you have to know him as he truly is, as the God who is light, as the God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ in the gospel. If you claim to have a relationship with him, then you cannot be assured that that's a true claim uh, if it's merely an assertion that you're making that isn't backed up by any kind of normal uh, standard evidence of such things. And so God says that uh, certain things will characterize those who have a relationship with him. And if you walk in the darkness, if your faith and your life <clears throat> don't line up with who God is, then um, the apostle says you're, you're lying, you're just making stuff up, and... Um, and you, you don't really have a relationship with him. But if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, that is, if you turn to the truth that he has revealed about himself, if you come to him through Jesus Christ, through the purification that's found in his sacrifice for you on the cross, then you can rest assured that you do have a real relationship with him. So John is writing to show what it looks like when you really do know God. Um, and he provides, throughout the letter, he provides these contrasts um, you know, if, if, if this describes you, you're just making stuff up. You don't really know God. But if this describes you, well, that's from God, and you really do know him then. Um, and so the contrast that he draws in our verses this morning is pretty fundamental, and it's also pretty painful. Um, it doesn't matter who you are. It stings acutely to be called a sinner. Right? It stings to be told that you're a sinner. It's always offensive to be confronted with that indictment. Right? Um, but John's pretty clear about it. If you deny that truth about yourself, you don't know God. Um, but if you know yourself to be a sinner, if you know what that means, if you confess your sins and you plead God's mercy through Jesus, then you can be absolutely assured of the reality of your relationship with him. So, <clears throat> so we're going to talk about three things this morning. Uh, before we look at the text. I'll mention them. Uh, First, you know, what is sin? Second, what are we doing when we refuse to confess our sins? And uh, third, how can we confess our sins? What is sin? What are we doing when we don't confess, when we refuse to confess? And uh, how can we truly confess our sins? So um, let's pray, and then we will read from 1 John. Father, uh, there are a lot of reasons why we don't want to read your word, or if we do read it, we don't want to hear or see certain things in it, um, we, we don't want to be changed by it, we don't want to accept it as truth. There are a lot of reasons why uh, that is true of us, but n- now as we come to read your word and to hear from it this morning, we pray that you would remove all those obstacles in us, that you would tear down every barrier from us truly hearing And and ultimately, truly truly hearing that you love us and that you want the best for us and that uh, you're willing to do whatever it takes to draw out the best in us, to create Christ in us. And so uh, we know that your word says you uh, want what is good for us. We pray that you would help us to believe that as we encounter this, uh, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So John is addressing the uh, real kind of... Problem teachings uh, of a a certain historical nature, right? Uh, There were people in the church that were teaching the idea that there really was no such thing as sin. Uh, There might have been people teaching that maybe sin belonged to this material realm, but if you're really spiritual, it has no effect on you. You don't do that. Or uh, that sin has no real bearing on our relationship with God, and therefore, um, you know, thinking about sin or addressing that as a problem, it's, it's really not that important. Um, so there are people who are saying either, like in verse eight, we have no sin, or like in verse ten, we have not sinned. So that's basically the distinction. There is, uh, you know, either sin is not a real principle in us; we have no sin, or we have actually not committed any specific sins. We know there might be such a thing, but we haven't done that. <laughs> um, and and both of those boil down to the same assertion, and it's a denial. It's a denial that my sin is a real obstacle to personal fellowship with God. Uh, that's what these people are teaching, <clears throat> that, that my sin is not a real obstacle to personal fellowship with God. In a few minutes, we'll look at the element of denial in those assertions, but I think it's first helpful for us to understand kind of generally uh, what sin is. Um, you ask the question, what is sin? I feel like I have to apologize um, because... Surely all of us have uh, experienced unsympathetic treatments of sin, uh, basically felt condemned by Christians who were talking about sin, and uh, condemned by ministers who were talking about sin. I've probably condemned you in the way that I've talked about sin, uh, so I'm going to apologize for that. It, it doesn't make it uh, something that we shouldn't listen to. We need, we need to pay attention to what sin is, uh, and, and the best place to learn about that is God's Word. So... Sin is a word that shows up a lot in the Bible. and It's a word that uh, we have probably all have a lot of assumptions about, but I wonder if we really have a clear understanding of it. Um, and in fact, I think sin by its very nature kind of resists discovery and it resists definition. It's very hard to define sin and, um, and to think about it for very long. You could say that sin is you know, doing what you're not supposed to do or not doing the things that you are supposed to do, and that's pretty simple, but I think a, a fuller biblical consideration of what sin is, it goes pretty deep. And the Bible says that what you're supposed to do is keep God's moral law. Right? It's been revealed to us in the Scriptures what God's moral law is, and uh, and we're supposed to do that. Obedience to God's law is how you're supposed to flourish. It's for your good, right? Um, it's not meant to enslave you. But obedience to God's law is, is how you are supposed to flourish as a human being who is created in God's image. And there are two uh, kind of class, classic biblical summaries of God's moral law. You've got the Ten Commandments. They're first seen in Exodus 20. You've got the two great commandments, which you see in the Gospels, like Matthew 22. <clears throat> but the um, you know, maybe the fuller summary of it, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, um, I'm just going to race through them, sum them up, right? Uh, you should have no other gods before the one true God, Yahweh. And you shouldn't make any images of what you think, you shouldn't imagine up God for yourself uh, in order to worship or serve that. You should not take God's name in vain. You should keep the Sabbath holy. You should honor your parents and all those who are in authority. Uh, you should not murder and not commit adultery, not steal, not lie, not covet. Right? That's... That's the basic summary in the Ten Commandments. And um, if you're interested, we, you know, we did go through that. Maybe a couple of years ago now in a sermon series. But the MP3s are, are available online or in the, on the book table. Um, but it's, it's worth thinking about God's law um, because that's how we're supposed to flourish as human beings. But Jesus sums up the moral, moral law of God when he says that you're to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, So basically, you are supposed to obey God, do what he says, and the essence of what that looks like is love. Love to God and love to other people. And when you don't do what God says, then you're sinning, which means that sin can be understood as law-breaking. God has given a law, and we have broken it. We've either not kept it or we've violated it, right? So that's, that's how the Westminster um, Shorter Catechism defines sin in the light of the whole Bible's teaching. You know, the Westminster was written a couple hundred years ago by a bunch of guys who really knew the Bible pretty well and tried to figure out what are the main parts that we need to know in order for our relationship with God uh, to be healthy and right. <clears throat> and so they're defining sin in, in the Shorter Catechism verse, uh, verse. question 14, uh, where they say sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Any want of conformity means you fail to keep it. And um, transgression of means you break it actively, right? So, uh, so sin can be understood as law-breaking. But if, if sin is breaking God's law, the essence of which is love, then you can see kind of at the root of sin also this concept of lovelessness. Uh, Or self love, that's what the Bible points out. Um, And since it's uh, selfish disregard for God's law, that means sin can be understood as rebellion or high treason, a personal offense or a trespass against God's person and God's character and God's will itself, Uh, uh, autonomous pride. Um, Since it's breaking God's law, and since the law is God-centered and it's meant to exalt him as the one true God, um, then sin can also be understood as idolatry. It's treating something else as more important, more valuable than him. And since the law is meant for our good and for our flourishing, sin can also be understood as unbelief because we don't trust God's word enough for it to shape our lives, for, for, for us to live by it right? So it's unbelief. Uh, So law-breaking, lovelessness, or self-love, rebellion, uh, pride, idolatry, unbelief, these are all facets. They're all different facets of what sin really is in essence, and you could probably add a a few more, you know, like being ungrateful. You know, keeping the law is uh, meant to be a response to God's grace, to His mercy in our lives, uh, to His goodness. So uh, it would be a thankful response, and we're not thankful, so it's uh, we're ingrates. <clears throat> um, and then, you know, you could add joylessness, not delighting fully in God and, and what He wants. And so, but ultimately, all these things have to do with our relationship to God, right? Ultimately, these all boil down to, to uh, personal relational matters between us and God. And so, sin, very simply, is saying no to God. It's saying no to God. It's saying no to who He is, to His claim over us to his will, uh, to his presence, right? And that, that right there should be an agreeable definition to anybody. Um, saying no to God. I mean, it, it starts to get more difficult than when you consider the fact that the Bible says that the law addresses not just our actions, but also our motives. Right? Uh, Jesus said that murder is something that you do in your heart, whether or not you pick up a weapon to actually kill somebody with it. Murder is something that goes on inside of your heart. Hatred, he said, that's a breaking of the law. Uh, Hatred is sin. He said the same thing about adultery. Lust in your heart is a breaking of that commandment, Uh, not just sleeping with someone who isn't your spouse. Um, Coveting is obvious. It's something you do with your heart, not with your hands. Um, So sin is something that's going on inside of us with our affections and with our motives Sin is saying no to God, ultimately with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Um, and that s- starts to get even more disturbing because it, it opens up possibilities to be driven by these sinful motives, not just to do blatantly sinful things, but to do apparently good things. Right? Because of what's wrong inside of our hearts, we'll even do good things but it'll be, it'll be coming from a heart that says no to God. So uh, you can sin while you're cutting the grass and waving hello to your neighbor. Right? Um, generally friendly gesture there. You can sin while uh, telling your children that you love them. If they think that uh, you're their hero, you can be sinning while you're doing that. Um, you can sin while letting pedestrians cross the street you can sin while standing quietly and patiently in the grocery checkout line. You can sin while serving at church or giving or singing. You can sin while being a longtime church member sitting there smiling. You can say no to God inwardly while apparently keeping God's law outwardly. You can draw near to God with your mouth while your heart is far from God, as God accuses his people in Isaiah 29. So sin can be saying no to God in your heart while saying yes to him externally, with what amounts to uh, lying lips. In fact, sin can, be, sin can be saying yes to God with your actions so that you can say no to God in your heart, in the deepest parts of your soul. Um, we regularly use religious good works to keep God at a distance, right? We, we say yes to him externally so that we don't really have to go to him for mercy, to remain independent and autonomous from God in our souls. And Isaiah 64 is talking about that when he says that, you know, our righteous deeds, our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And that's uh, cleaned up language. <laughs> that's what that is. Uh, it's basically saying that disgusting as a menstrual rag are the good works of feigned obedience that we do in order to feed our pride and to remain at a distance from God and to salve, salve our consciences apart from his mercy. Uh, and that's what you're doing when you say, I'm basically a good person. That's what you're doing. Um, you're saying no to God while claiming that you're saying yes to him, thinking that you're saying yes to him. In reality, that's saying no to God in the worst way. Um, and you can say that as a Christian, thinking that you're doing a pretty good job keeping God's law deliberately. Or you can say that as a non-Christian, claiming some kind of vague, shapeless, um, generic righteousness for yourself. Right? Basically a good person. But, um, but the really bad news is that every single one of us does this. Every one of us. Uh, I mean, who do you know that doesn't say I'm basically a good person. Whether they've said that out loud or not, they just say it with their actions. I'm basically a good person. Um, Everybody says that. Everybody says no to God. Everybody sins. And that's not a conclusion that we would come to on our own. We're too good at hiding our sins from ourselves. Um, We'd really rather not believe it about ourselves. So God has to tell us in his special revelation in the Scriptures, his inspired word. He tells us over and over, uh, 1 Kings, there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 14, there is no one who does good, not even one. Ecclesiastes 7, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah 64, we've all become like one who's unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John Stott says God's word frequently declares that sin is universal, Uh, universal. And Jesus continues to make things worse for us when he says things like he does in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, Jesus said. Everyone has enslaved himself, everyone has enslaved herself to saying no to God. Apart from the freedom of the gospel, it's not possible for you to say yes to God. Uh, You're bound to say no to God because that's what you want to do. That's what you want to do because it's in your nature, it's in your identity apart from Christ. So, so what are we doing when we refuse to confess that, when we don't acknowledge that? Um, It says in verse 8 of our text, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And the reality, as brought to light by God's word, is that we sin. We've seen it already in God's word, uh, but we tend to look for any reason not to acknowledge that about ourselves. We're very slow to confess our sins. At the best, right? at the best, some people have even created philosophical worldviews or religious worldviews that explain away sin entirely, asserting that no such thing even exists. Uh, presumably so as not to have to confess them. And that's what the early church was seeing, that's what John's addressing. Some folks say, we have no sin. Sin is not a true category. Sin is not a relevant category with regard to humanity. And and if you can explain it away entirely like that, I suppose you can believe that you're not guilty of sin. You can deal with guilt by making sin a non-thing. But usually I think We're a lot more subtle about our denial of sin. Uh, That's what it is, Um, denial, when you can't think of something to confess. You know, you come to that time at worship and you're racking your brain, the beginning of the service, what can I confess? What sin can I confess? Can't think of much. Uh, That's denial, right? Um, The truth is clearly that you say no to God in so many ways, Um, all these ways that we've talked about, but you're you're not even aware of all these ways that you say no to him because you're in denial. The thought of complete and utter honesty, even just being honest with yourself, let alone saying it out loud to somebody else or confessing to God your sins, you know, it's too painful, it's too fearful, it's too risky. We suspect that our sin merits rejection. We suspect that. And, uh, and we can't fix the problem of our guilt. We can't manage it. We can't control it. So we deceive ourselves. We successfully convince ourselves that we don't have this thing called sin inside of us, uh, that we don't commit specific sins. Nothing comes to mind anyway. Right? Um, I had a friend in college who had grown up in a local church around here and uh, who thought he thought very highly of God's law, of holiness, of devotion and service, who clearly knew that there was such a thing as sin in other people, and he, uh, he told me, he strongly asserted and argued, we argued about it, that he'd never broken any of the Ten Commandments. And, um, and that's denial. That's, that's just deliberate refusal to face the facts. Right? Um, that's self-deception. It's not true. And, and one of the main ways that we deceive ourselves, as we mentioned before, is by doing lots of good things all the time. And so it's very easy to overlook the motives, the sinful motives behind those good things, you know, Everything's going according to plan, right? When, uh, when you reflect on your life and think, uh, basically, I'm a good person. Everything's going according to plan. And the funny thing is, uh, it's actually, using this word a ton, it's sinful to, to deny your sin, right? That's, that's kind of funny. It's sinful to deny that you sin. It's funny if you catch it, and it's tragic if you don't that it's sinful not to confess your sins because it's your sin at work in you to prevent you from discovering it, to prevent you from confessing it, right? Sinners who don't confess are just being true to themselves in their sin nature. It's, it's loyalty over honesty, right? loyalty to your own sin nature, to hide what's going on inside of yourself from yourself. So when you don't confess your sins, you're saying no to God because he's clearly told you that you have lots of sins to confess, right? <clears throat> so, verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. His word isn't in us. As we've seen before, his, his word frequently declares that sin is universal. It's something that every human being has done except for one. Um, and it's not just that it's universal. It's pervasive and it's thorough and it's constant. Um, Genesis six verse five says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." And then Jeremiah 17:9, "The heart is deceitful above all things and, de- and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? And that's God's description of you. <clears throat> that's God's description of you in and of yourself. That's what he reveals. If you don't confess your sins, if you don't own that aspect of yourself, then it's the same as accusing God of lying because that's what he says about you. Um, but, but we're the liars, and that's what self-deception is, right? So we're lying to ourselves. Um, <clears throat> Malcolm Muggridge, who's a 20th century uh, English writer, said that the, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. Um, So when we don't confess our sins, we're not living in light of God's truth, God's word, which means according to John, we're walking in darkness, and uh, we're not really in an honest relationship with him. So how can we be in that relationship with him? How can we honestly uh, and truly confess our sins? Um, You know, if if you're reluctant To confess your sins. If you're in denial, you know, about your sin, then it's for the same reason an addict is in denial about his addiction. Uh, It's for the same reason. Uh, You're afraid to admit it. The fear is overwhelming because the consequences are entirely unmanageable. Uh, If you confess that you're rotten all the way down, that you say no to God in the most devious and subtle and rebellious ways, then you're risking divine rejection. If you do that, you're risking divine retribution. <clears throat> but God says that, uh, that that rejection, that retribution, only awaits those who refuse to confess their sins. It only awaits those who ultimately persist in their denial, who don't, in the end, confess their sins and throw themselves on Him for His mercy. And that should be fine with you, right? If you're if you're heart, soul, mind, and strength are utterly devoted to saying no to God, then you shouldn't mind much if He says no to you too. Right? But the Gospel says that uh, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear in confessing your sins, and that's what makes it okay to stop the denial. Because if we confess our sins, God won't turn His face away in disgust. If we confess our sins... God won't shout, Aha! Got gotcha. you! Die, rebel scum! If we confess our sins, God won't punish you or put you on probation until you are thoroughly reformed and no longer sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's, um, that's the first verse I ever memorized as a Christian. I recommend it to you. It's worth memorizing. It's worth thinking about for the rest of your life. This is the reassuring promise of absolute grace, absolute mercy toward anyone who owns their rebellion against God, who acknowledges their idolatry, confesses their autonomous pride. This is the truth. This is God's word to you. As a sinner, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, that verse might not make perfect sense in all of its phrases until you explore it a little. Uh, So let's do that just for a minute. If we confess our sins, he is talking about God. He is faithful. He is faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us, right? What does it mean that he's faithful? God has made promises throughout the history of his dealings with people. Throughout the history of humanity, the history that's recorded in the scriptures, he's made promises Throughout the Bible, to this effect, he's revealed himself as the God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who he is. He says in Jeremiah 31, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's a promise, and those are promises that he's faithful to keep because he's faithful to his promises. But there's a little tension here with the next phrase. It's he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us. He's faithful and just. Um, Sin is unjust, right? Sin is unjust. Uh, And so for God to be just, for God to be righteous, he corrects the wrong of our sin. He fixes that problem. He pays what it's due. It says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. So what you earn and what you justly deserve for saying no to God is for him to say no to you, which means your eternal death. That's justice. And God is just to meet out what is deserved. He says in uh, Numbers 14, the Lord is slow to anger an abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Then in Psalm 99, it's a prayer that says, O oh Lord, you were a forgiving God to your people, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. He forgives and he avenges. He forgives and he does not clear. So God is faithful to his promises to forgive, to be merciful, and God is also just which means that when he forgives you your sins, he also pays out the wages of those sins. He pays out those wages. And the gospel says that Jesus was the only sinless one at the bloody cross, took the wages of of death, that our sins deserved, so that God could both forgive us and be just to forgive us. And everybody says uh, no to God all the time. But even so, in Jesus Christ, God said yes to you once and for all. He said yes. And your no can't stop that. He says yes to you in Jesus Christ. And you can see how this frees us um, to confess our sins. You know, if your child, uh, a lot of us are parents in here, but you can at least imagine this. Your child, let's say they broke a vase. That's a pretty common occurrence, right? That's uh, what always gets called out. Um, they break a vase, they go and hide. Why? What are they afraid of? And you find that vase and you start screaming, who broke this vase? And they hide even more, right? They hide even more. But if you approach them personally, lovingly, assuring them, look, I'm not going to get angry at you. Just, you know, did you break the vase? (laughs) Uh, And if they believe that, they're going to tell you and your relationship's going to be better. It will be. You have nothing to fear from God in confessing your sins to him because he has promised forgiveness and cleansing and it's been purchased and it's been guaranteed through the, the death of his own son in your place. So every sinner... Every sinner who confesses has a Savior in Jesus, so you really can confess your sins to him. So go ahead and admit it, right? You sin. Go ahead and admit it. True confession then isn't saying, I can't believe I did that. That's just not like me. True confession is not saying, oh, I just was having a really bad day. Sorry. True confession is not, I didn't really mean to do that. I didn't really mean to say that. Uh, it's not, oh, I was just joking around when I said that. Um, true confession is not, well, you know, everybody makes mistakes, so... Uh, it's not, yeah, I shouldn't have done that, but he did this to me. You know? True confession's not, well, at least I'm not as bad as her. True confession is not, I just couldn't help myself. I just couldn't help myself. Those are just, those are just more excuses. It's more denial. It's more blame-shifting, self-justification, self-deception. It's not the truth. Right. And his absolute grace frees you to admit that you said no to him because you wanted to say no to him. It's that bad, but it's Okay. You said no to him because you wanted to. And true confession is owning that. It's admitting that. It's dropping your guard and letting that be the truth like it is. It's not spinning the truth anymore. It means letting God, for the rest of your life, point out stuff in your heart that you refused to see before. It's letting him point out stuff that you refused to see about yourself and saying you're right, that's bad. I'm sorry, please forgive me. And that's it. True confession isn't maudlin. You know, we don't grovel, we're not despairing. Uh, It's driven by the great sense of relief that the gospel brings, right? It's relief because you know as you go to Jesus, you will receive mercy and restoration and ultimately joy in fellowship with God. Jack Miller said, this is a great quote, he said, our repenting should be as daily and delightful as our eating. Grace gives us that kind of joy. Can you imagine that? Our repenting, our confessing, our turning away from sins, our turning to God, it should be as daily, regular, and delightful as eating because grace gives us that kind of joy. And when you do it, when he sins, you confess your sins, he's not only faithful and just to forgive you, he's also faithful and just to cleanse you from your unrighteousness. And so that's describing an ongoing process of transformation uh, where God not only forgives the debt of sin once for all, but cleanses its stain on you. So his love, his grace will win you. Little by little, Not perfectly, not completely in this life, but little by little to to really say yes to him. You'll start to love him with at least part of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and at least start to give a thought to loving your neighbor as yourself. And one of the best ways to do that, to say yes to God, to thank him for his grace, and to show love to our neighbors, is to show them the love of God that frees us to confess our sins one of the best ways to love God and our neighbor in a changed way is to show them the love of God that frees us to confess our sins. Because our neighbors, everyone around us, is just as afraid to admit their faults as you are. Right. And God's grace, by God's grace alone, you have found forgiveness and cleansing in Jesus Christ. You really do have a relationship with God. It's not characterized by fear of rejection. It's founded on full and free acceptance, such absolute acceptance that you can admit you don't deserve it. Right? For X, Y, and Z reasons. I know I don't deserve this. And you can point out how that's true in specific ways. And so your confession of sins, strangely enough, can be a comfort to others. And it's really one of the best ways to show them that they're free to confess their sins too. Right? Um, God didn't chase you into a corner with threats. He didn't chase you into the corner with his belt right? Uh, to get you to confess. He assured you that you have his love no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. And that's what broke the dam. right? So if we're going to share the good news with others, if we're going to extend his very love to other sinners who are in denial, then we can't go out in condemnation can't be chasing others into the corner with threats and with our belts, right? Um, We have to go out in contrition. There's a joyful contrition. We have to go out in confession. We celebrate our freedom by being honest about who we are, right? Um, That's the evangelical effect of the gospel, and that's what's going to make this church a friendly place to sinners. That's what will make this church a place where our children can grow up and know it's a home, for broken people, for when they mess it up really bad. So believe the gospel and confess your sins to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we sin in ways that we don't even know, um, and we're thankful that we can say that about ourselves and do so without fear of rejection from You, fear of retribution. We thank you for all of your grace that is poured out through Jesus Christ who suffered in our place and who um, assures us beyond a shadow of a doubt that we truly are welcome into your very heaven, into your very court, into your very house, into your very family. We're welcomed and will never be rejected no matter who we are and what we've done because of Jesus and because of him alone. And so we come to you through him. And we want to uh, confess our sins to you, and uh, we hope that you would uh, not just be merciful to us, but be merciful to our friends through us, be merciful to our family through us, as you teach people around us, through our humility, through our confession, that you truly are a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Uh, We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.